don't know, Bill, maybe you want to, where are you? Are you going to lead us in that dance? Okay, there you go. Thank you. There you go. That's all right, Bill. That's good. We're going to have a little river dance to this celebration. Well, welcome to faith. Welcome to our event series. We're talking today about hope. Hope. Hope is the assurance and expectation of something good desired and longed for will happen. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard to hope when so much seems hopeless. Uh, hope uh, is wavering in Baltimore. Uh, Sun writer Doug Donovan, in speaking about the violence and police challenges in a recent article, said, staggered by a succession of crises, civil rights violations, corruption, convictions, an unsolved killing of a homicide detective, the Baltimore Police Department is closing out its dismal year with a depleted force, struggling to contain soaring violent crime while restoring wavering public trust. Uh, and he reported that there have been nearly 990 homicides over the past three years, and said that the current three-year crime rate is the worst in the city's history. Uh, and former police colonel Edward Jackson said, we've had horrible periods, but not like this. It's as low as it's ever been. And so we need to keep our policemen and our government and our leaders in our prayers. This is not just somebody else's problem. This is ours. This is our city. This is our community. And, uh, and we need to be praying uh, for our city. But it's hard. It's hard to hope in such times. And it's hard to hope when so many uh, others are feeling hopeless by the trials that they're experiencing. I can think of individual traumas that are part of the lives of those in our body. Last week, last Sunday actually, uh, Reuben, our youth pastor, uh, appealed for prayer for his sister, uh, Eugenia, and her three children, Michelle Joel and Janelle, because last Sunday, after a seven-year battle of pancreatic cancer, her husband Michael died. We're comforted knowing that he is with the Lord, but there's a lot of loss and there's a lot of grief in such a time. I know of a, a sister or sisters in our body who experienced such chronic pain that uh, she doesn't feel that life is worth going on at times. And I know of the deep grieving of miscarriages and of stillborn babies. I know of the brokenness uh, and the, of marriages of once full and uh, mutual affections and admirations descend into wounds of brokenness, separation, and divorce. Uh, there are many more traumas that, uh, and losses uh, among many of us here, and you know those deep losses, and uh, it's hard to hope when so many things seem hopeless. How does one hope in a world of crushed hopes? And that is one of the key purposes for our Advent series. Advent means coming. It means arrival. It's about the coming and the arrival of Jesus who came and about Jesus who is coming back. 
Our hope is not in wishful dreaming. Our hope is in the God who showed up. And it is in Christ the Emmanuel who became flesh among us. This, this season becomes a good season to remind us of where our true hope is and where hope is for a wounded and hopeless world. Hebrews 6 says, we have this hope, an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And so here in this first epistle of Peter, in this chapter, this opening chapter, we're encouraged by his words uh, to consider this anchor for our souls, this firm and secure hope. Let's start with verse 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not now see him, you believe in him, and, are, and, rejo and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through, the, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. If you were to read the entire uh, epistle, this the entire letter of Peter, you would recognize that he's describing very hard times. Charles Dickens said this, uh, this is the worst of times, and it was probably true for Peter and those believers at that time. Peter is writing this letter near the end of his life uh, to the dispersed believers throughout the Roman provinces of northwestern Asia Minor. He identifies them as God's elect chosen ones, but strangers and aliens in the world. One scholar would describe them as resident aliens. Uh, these scattered believers were a group of socially marginalized people. They were disenfranchised workers laboring in the cracks of a network that largely excluded them, but who had found the meaning to their existence in the Christian family. We've already read that they suffered 
grief in all kinds of manifold trials. Peter later on tells them to bear up under the pain of unjust suffering and not to be surprised of the painful trial they were suffering as though something strange were happening. It seemed like more and more Christians were becoming the target of Roman government and more and more were facing discrimination, acts of violence, arrests, arrest, confiscation of property. Eventually, the Roman Emperor Nero and his maniac state would burn Rome to the ground and then blame it on Christians that he uh, then began to fiercely persecute. Some he had sewed, had them sewed up into animal skins and were killed by dogs. Others uh, he had uh, dressed in skirts of wax, and then he fixed them to poles, wooden posts, and set on fire in his gardens. It was during this time that the apostle Paul was beheaded, and it's also during this time that Peter himself was crucified upside down on a cross. The situation for believers at that time was difficult, and many others would be imprisoned and martyred for their faith. And so what do you say to such marginalized and suffering saints? Blessed praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter erupts in praise. He erupts in worship. Worship is the first thing out of his mouth, but Peter is not the only one full of celebration. He turns to the scattered, persecuted believers, and, and he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. He, he says how they are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And he talks about the prophets of old, how they intently search with meticulous care and detail about something amazingly special that was to happen to them. And he talks about how the Spirit of Christ directed them and pointed, them, pointed the prophets' hearts to this matter. And he talks about the angels, the heavenly host of God, and they were standing, as it were, on tiptoes, bending and stretching themselves as far as they could to peer into this wonderful thing that God was doing. And what was this wonderful thing that Peter was talking about, that everyone was jazzed about? Well, what was it that charged them with overflowing energy? What consumed the prophets? What kept the angels spellbound? How could people who were in the utter pits of life ascend to the glory of heaven, salvation, deliverance, redemption. Concerning this salvation, Peter says, the prophets uh, prophesied about the grace that was yours and searched intently. What things about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow? What everybody was so charged about was the fact that God, the almighty, holy creator, would stoop so low to raise such sinners out of the garbage heap of sin and rebellion. And Peter could never get over God's amazing grace in salvation. This was the focus and the longing of his soul. It was because of such a salvation that Peter and the persecuted believers were filled with such hope and joy. But these words were written not just to them, but they are written to us. 
God wants you and I, He wants us to be filled with hope and joy, a living hope, an abiding joy that drives us to worship, that supersedes our sufferings. This passage of Peter is not only a call to worship in spite of sufferings, but it shows us a cause to worship in the face of our sufferings. And so we see here that Peter shows us that we can worship God in our sufferings, in our troubles and trials, because we have a living hope. And he gives us three different pictures. One is that we have this great mercy of a glorious future. We have a great joy of redemptive suffering, and we have a great searching of prophets and longing angels. And so he opens, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born into a living hope. And this hope, this is a living hope. The hope that we possess is dynamic. It is not hopeful wishes. It is not something that we have to keep alive. I remember years ago there was uh, the Reverend uh, Jesse Jackson had a political rally uh, down on Greenmount Avenue in the Waverly area. And I remember the recant, keep hope alive, keep hope alive, keep hope alive. But the hope that Peter is talking about doesn't have to be kept alive. It is not up to us to keep it alive because it is not based on you. It's not based on me. It is based on the ever-living Christ who conquered the grave, who rose from the dead, and he reigns on high. And so we don't keep hope alive because Hope lives, ever lives in Christ. But we need to live with this certain hope. We need to contemplate it. We need to meditate on it and reflect on this living hope. And so let's first consider the great mercy of our secure future. And he says, according to this great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into this living hope, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so Peter, he wants to see, and he wants us to look at the bigger picture of our present sufferings. We have this inheritance. We have this glorious future. It's imperishable. He wants us to think about these things. Paul, he prays for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, Jesus uh, told the disciples that they should lay up treasures in heaven in Matthew 6. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Uh, there was, uh, we had a break in this past week in the White House, uh, 5.30 in the morning, I think it was Wednesday morning, uh, a thief had busted the front window out and climbed in, set the alarm off, but he, he was smart. He knew that he had about 30 minutes to do whatever he needed to do. And so uh, he went and took the video projector and he ran up in my office and I had one of the, I had an old com laptop computer that was sitting out and he took that. And I don't know, he went into my closet and then he, like one of the first comp laptop computers that still had the floppy drives in it, you know. It must have been 20 years old. He took that, uh, and he took some of Ruben's new books. Uh, one was on leadership, 
and uh, one was on race matters. I don't know what he's going to learn from all these things. But here's the deal. People will want to take your stuff. Uh, they want to take your, what they perceive as your treasures. Uh, they are going to uh, rob you. And so Jesus is reminding us not to lay up treasures on this earth, but lay up treasures that no thief can ever get. Uh, and so he's encouraging an eternal perspective. But we often have a wrong view of the final state of, uh, of our eternal state. We often think of heaven as uh, somewhat you know, cloudy, ethereal, uh, disembodied, it's far away. Uh, we, and some, you know, we sometimes comfort ourselves with our beloved ones who have gone on before in a better place, but we don't really have a real s- concrete sense of what that place is. Uh, we don't really think too much about the resurrection of our bodies, uh, and we're left with some nebulous thoughts on celestial beings floating around the throne, singing with non-material tongues, disembodied spirits. Uh, Johnny Erickson, who uh, wrote a book on uh, heaven, your real home, uh, said, earth's best is only a dim reflection, a primary rendering, a preliminary rendering of the glory that will one day be revealed. And so she's been, uh, you know, paralyzed. She's a quadriplegic. She's been paralyzed for over 40 years. And uh, she has spent a lot of time thinking about heaven. She's, uh, she said, I can't tell you how much sorrow I've held at bay over the years. Tears could come easily if I allowed myself to think of all the pleasures of movement and sensation I've missed diving into a pool and feeling my arms and legs slice through the water, plucking guitar strings with my fingers, jogging till my muscles burn, cracking steam-broiled Maryland crabs with a mallet, throwing back the covers in the morning and hopping out of bed, running my hands across my husband's chest and feeling it, to think that one day we shall hear these words uttered that haven't been spoken since Adam was thrust out of Eden, there shall be no more sorrow. She said, don't assume that if there is no marriage in heaven, we shall be forced to embark on an eternal abstinence. Don't chew on the idea that with no charcoal grills in heaven, we shall be compelled to take nourishments in gray, tasteless pills. Use your faith. Think in terms of future divine fulfillment. See that every negative is just the reverse side of a fulfilling because what is no longer needed for biological purposes such as procreation or digestion serve a far higher, more beautiful function. Faith tells us that the pleasures and the privileges people enjoy in marriage are only hints and whispers of greater delights yet to come. Faith tells us not to grieve, We will not lose in heaven, we will gain. The Lord who has planted the seed of future divine fulfillments in almost every good thing on earth will carry it on to completion. You know, you think about Jesus when he rose from the dead. You know, Jesus just didn't like rise from the dead and immediately ascend to heaven. He spent 40 days, over a period of 40 days, he appeared to his disciples He wanted to make it very concrete that his glorified 
immortal body was real. And so they had breakfast with him by the shore. He ate with them. They could touch him, even though he wasn't confined to this world. But his body was glorified. The scriptures tell us, and when we see him, we shall be like him. We're going to represent Christ in the glorified sense in our own bodies. He is the firstborn from the dead. And all the delights and all the glories that come with that. Psalm 16 says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Someday, God will pull back the curtain so that we will see these unseen realities. It won't be boring. There will be no more boring sermons or confusion about what uh, you know, the heaven is about. Uh, no disconnection. Uh, it will be a total absorption and joy and pleasure. All the things that stir our interest, that captivate our hearts and imagination will be embodied in an ever-increasing pleasure. Catholic philosopher Peter Kreef says this, Our pictures of heaven simply do not move us. Our pictures of heaven are dull. Platted platitudinous, and syrupy. Therefore, so is our faith, our hope, and our love of heaven. It doesn't matter whether it's a dull lie or a dull truth. Dullness, not doubt, is the strongest enemy of faith. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. And so Jesus, you know, he, he tells his disciples before he is arrested and then crucified, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also me. My Father's house are many rooms or many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I tell you because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you to bring you with me. That's Jesus' objective. He wants to bring his sons and daughters home to be with him in this glory. You know, if it took God six days to create the universe and all of its majesty and glory, what do you think heaven's going to be like? What do you think the, the New Jerusalem will be like, this, this city, and how much thought and energy and time and space that God has placed in that is going to be amazing. And so we need to reflect on this. We have this great mercy, this imperishable inheritance. It's powerfully guarded. And we have uh, this great joy in our present sufferings. He says, and in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, Nestor, you have been grieved by various trials. Uh, Ed Clowney says, dramatically, Peter moves from ecstasy to agony. We who rejoice in Christ suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And this phrase, he says, if necessary, although for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Uh, this word means to, it needs, if needs be, if it must be, if it ought to be. 
if it's necessary, if it's right and proper. Uh, it means the necessity, necessity is established by the counsel and decree of God, especially by that purpose of his which relates to the salvation of God's people. And so there are some times that God says this needs to be. Your trials need to be. Uh, and there was a pastor, Nick Needham, from London. He said, God does not promise some kind of immunity when, it when we become believers, that you can pull out some kind of exemption card of immunity from trials and afflictions of human life when trouble and affliction come knocking at your door. There is no Christian exemption certificate that we can wave in front. Well, I'm now a believer. Uh, there should be no more trials for me. He says, this is what he says, if you, you can suffer illness, you can have an accident, your house can be burglarized, your goods can be stolen, you can lose your job, you can be afflicted with poverty, you can be physically assaulted, you can be emotionally depressed, you can be bereaved if there are destructive gale force winds, they will not spare your property merely because you are a Christian. Snow will not spare you if there is a blizzard. Heat will not spare you if there is a drought. You can face every kind of problem that spoils human relationships, tensions, suspicions, false accusations, personality clashes, painful misunderstanding, gut-wrenching, betrayal. Your friends can desert you. Your husband and wife or wife can deceive you. Your children can turn against you. All are part of the multifaceted rainbow of human affliction to which the human believer is granted no ex exemption. <laughs> so, Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, you know, I think about uh, heroes of the faith before us, and if you look at their autobiographies, you see so many of them dealt with a lot of human suffering. Uh, John Calvin suffered chronic agonizing ill health throughout his long ministry. Martin Luther, William Cowper suffered bouts of the most dreadful depression. Uh, godly women uh, often lo lost sanity and needed constant care. John Bunyan spent 12 years in prison. In so many ways, God said, this needs be, that these faints would not be spared. But you know what makes all the difference in the world and what should make all the difference in the world for you and I is that these trials, these tribulations do not come at the hand of just a random, impersonal God, but they come at the hand of a loving, loving sovereign, most merciful God. For knowing that the hardship that we go through is not some random, impersonal act of God, but one that God is orchestrating and allowing, ordaining, personally engaging in, in order to demonstrate his presence in our lives, to shape the mold us. He is the perfect uh, coach uh, to bring us into his gymnasium, and he's working to refine us that we might bring eternal glories in his presence. And so... Rebecca Pippert says this, He, Jesus, is the only one in the universe who can control us without destroying us. No one will ever love, us, love you like Jesus. 
The last breath Jesus breathed on this planet was for you. Jesus will meet you wherever you are, and he will help you. He is not intimidated by past failures, broken promises, or wounds. He will make sense out of your brokenness. The God behind all of our trials, whether it's a direct, a direct uh, engagement of God or whether it's allowed or per- permitted, God is the sovereign, loving Lord. It is his personal hand at work. And you, ne- you need to recognize as it, sometimes it needs to be. Sometimes it needs to be. And so we can freely worship because we have a great mercy for a secure and glorious future. We have a great joy in the face of suffering and trials. And finally, we have a great searching of God's servant prophets and angels. And he talks about concerning the salvation of the prophets who prophesied, search with intensity, inquired carefully. And it was revealed to them they weren't serving themselves but you. And it says, even the angels long to look. Uh, John Piper notes in the opening section of this epistle that there are no commandments in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. There's nothing he's telling them to do anything. No demands or requirements or directions. What Peter is doing here is not telling us what to do, but telling us what to enjoy. (laughs) He is not exhorting, he's exalting. What Peter wants us to see here is that God means for his people to be profoundly secure in him. He wants us to feel that God himself is doing everything that must be done to guarantee our final eternal salvation and glory. And so he brings up the prophets, and he brings up the prophets. These prophets had searched intensely carefully to look and find Jesus. Jesus told his disciples uh, who were blessed to live during his period of time in Matthew 13, for I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so it is a profound thing that uh, to live in the time that Jesus came. And it's a profound thing that you and I exist in this part of history where Jesus has appeared and that he has resurrected and he's ascended into heaven. Scott McKnight says this, This is the great privilege of the church age, the enjoyment of the inauguration of God's salvation in Christ. It is so great that even angels are looking down to gain a glimpse, like wedding attendees attempting to steal a glance at the bride before her appearance. The angels are brought here not to invite us to speculate about their activities, but to press on our minds the privileges of salvation, neither the prophets nor the angels experience, but what the church assumes and enjoys. And the reality, the question is, do you realize what you have? Do you realize the period of time that you're living in, believer, that you are living in the history that Christ has fulfilled this, he has come. The angels would like tiptoe and they would give everything that they could have to, to see and capture a glimpse of what Christ has done. The prophets, they searched intently for the appearance 
of Jesus, but we can look back and know that this has happened, that Jesus lived on this earth, that Jesus died and he rose again and he ascended. Uh, there's the whole sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on this little phrase uh, that even the angels long to look into. And he just reviewed how God has given angels uh, these ministering spirits uh, who exist in the spiritual realm. And he says, he says, what is the interest of angels in this salvation? And he kind of reveals that they're not, uh, they don't need salvation themselves. The angels that are around the throne of God have never sinned. They don't need justification. They don't need atonement. Uh, they, they don't need forgiveness. They've never done anything wrong. Uh, these are, by the way, higher spiritual beings than we are. Uh, they, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're made a little lower than the angels. Uh, but we're like their little brothers and sisters. And uh, even though they don't need any redemption because they just are ecstatic to be in the presence of God, it says that they're always looking in the face of God. And you know, these angels, they are always excited about what God is about. And so, as they look in the face of God, what do they see? They see God's face looking to you. They see God's face looking to me. They see God astounded and his heart moved by us. And so because God's heart's moved to us, their hearts are moved. And so they're looking into the salvation. They can't imagine how this God, this holy all-wise, all-righteous God would stoop so low to send the divine Son of God to experience the miseries of this world, to be in the midst of sinners, and yet not sin himself, and then take on our sin on the cross. This was an amazing thing. The angels stooped to see. But you and I are the object of that salvation, and it is an amazing thing. How is it that these prophets uh, could be so selfless? How is it that these angels could be so full of love for us? Because they are so full of God. Uh, they are so full of the love of God. And so uh, the final thing I want you to think about is to focus your hope. And so in verse 13, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the first charge. This is the first exhortation that Peter gives us after he shows us this great mercy and this great joy and this great searching is, okay, now that all this is yours, set your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ and all the grace that will be brought to you. Do you struggle thinking about your future? Do you struggle wondering if you have enough savings to take care of yourself or your beloved ones in your later years? Do you find yourself tending towards depression when you think about how are you gonna make it when you can't work anymore? Well, God knows all these things. He says, um, 
Paul says, if you have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And if you're here and you don't have food or clothing to take care of, there's a big family here. Uh, we welcome you. Uh, we are struggling uh, believers, but we want you to know that we want you in our family, that God extends his arms to you. Uh, but Peter encourages us uh, to spend more time thinking about our ultimate future, not our temporary future. He wants us to think about the certain hope that we have and to meditate on passages like these in the scriptures. But he wants us all to fight for, he wants us to fight for joy. Remember that your suffering and your trials are only for a season. He says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you'll have to face many trials. You know what? This is the only time you'll have the opportunity to suffer. Think about that. This is it. This, this, this little piece of history is your opportunity to suffer because there won't be any more suffering in glory. He's going to wipe all your tears away. It is just for a little while. But this is an opportunity to be refined and to bring praise and honor and glory because that's what the trials do. They, uh, Paul talks about how uh, our trials and our sufferings accumulate for us an eternal weight of glory that supersedes all the sufferings that we ever go through. And so, <clears throat> encourage each other in this. Your weeping and your tears are stored up in bottles. He remembers every wound, every suffering loss, and he redeems it all. Nothing is lost. But finally, freely serve. He says, concerning this salvation of prophets, uh, revealed that they were not serving themselves but you. The angels were serving you. How could these prophets be so selfless? How could these angels uh, be so captivated by our salvation? How is it that uh, they were so enamored by this is because they were so full of the love of God. Uh, the reason that they didn't have to think about themselves is because they knew that God was thinking about them. The reason they didn't have to like, keep loving themselves and fo focus on themselves because they knew that they were loved by an eternal God who kept loving them. And when you live in the sense that you are fully, eternally loved by God, that he's always thinking about you, then you're free. You're free. And so Paul, Peter encouraged us to be free, and he encourages us uh, to think about heaven a lot more. And so every time a flower blooms... Or every time you experience a warm embrace of someone that loves you. Every true passion or longing that you feel. Every dance of beauty and grace like we saw here this morning. Every skillful chord or resounding note or a cappella chorus sung. Every mouth-dissolving bite of Giardella dark chocolate. And every long sip of a Starbucks caramel macchiato frappuccino, which I don't know exactly what it tastes like, but it sounds wonderful. And the wonder of every blanket of fresh winter snow, all these and more are just nudges of the wonders of his love that he has 
plan for us for eternity that only get better and better. But the greatest wonder of his love is the eternal smiling face of the Father who loves you to the depths. It is the eternal loving embrace of Jesus Christ uh, who sees you as the apple of his eye. It is the eternal fellowship of the Holy Spirit who lives in you even now. All of these expressions are his love for you. He wants you to know that love. You're free. You're free to serve. You're free to suffer. And you're free to hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you give us uh, this, these words of Peter, who probably not too long after this, um, you took him home. Lord, we thank you for this apostle who, over the course of his life, he could probably say he, he wished he didn't say that. He, he wished he didn't do that. But Lord, we thank you that you chose a weak man uh, because you're a strong God and you made him strong to the end. Lord, help us in our weakness to be strong in you. Uh, help us to think about heaven. Help us to live for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.